Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm coming to you from Southern California. This is Rob Hunt of Linnea Holdings, joined today by my buddy Colin Palmer, back from uh, Massachusetts and Vessel Life Sciences. And um, unfortunately, we are not with our regular co-hosts, Larry Mishkin and Jim Marty today. Larry is still coming back from a, a long weekend with his uh, son getting married. And, and I think Jim Marty is still recovering, believe it or not, from uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, three nights of fish out in Colorado. So uh, unfortunately, I am joined by my buddy, Colin. How are you doing today, Colin? Doing really well, man. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Awesome. So, uh, so before we really get started today, I did want to make sure that we uh, said a belated happy birthday to what would have been Pigpen's 76th birthday about a week ago at this point. And uh, yesterday um, is uh, Mickey Hart's birthday, so happy birthday to Mickey. And uh, it's nice to see some, uh, some birthdays in the Grateful Dead community. Today, I think we're going to cover a little bit of Grateful Dead, a little bit of fish. Uh, I think, uh, you know, looking at the date today being 9-12, it's a great day to discuss 9-12-85 from um, uh, the Henry J. Kaiser Arena, which is a terrific show. And obviously, there's lots of music news that's been happening on Fish Tour and on Dead & Company Tour, uh, as well as a lot of news that's been happening in the uh, the Canvas community. So maybe, uh, Colin, you and I should start off there and and talk about um, the new regs that were just promulgated by the state of California. Have you taken a look at them, or have you any thoughts yet? So I still am digest- digesting everything. I need to read things a few times before I make any real decisions or opinions on it. But um, you know, things are changing in a in a in a in a, in a fast way. Um, and you know, th- these are some of the changes I think that most people have been yearning for but i don't know if it's in the right direction quite yet um but uh yeah i think i think we just california's going through a lot of changes you know it's a it's a really interesting time right now so hopefully it's uh it's gonna help a lot of people understand uh ways back into the industry and and ways to stay in the industry yeah i think you know california um you know living out here and i know you do a lot of work out here it's um, it's such a tough industry to get back under control because, as I explain to people all the time, we're not just a consumer state. We're a producer state as well and have been for years and years, which means that when you think about the illicit market that, you know, exists, exists as a consumer, you know, market in many states, exists here as a producer market too. So trying to get that under control and figure out, you know, how to bifurcate the illicit and the legal is something that's always just a constant challenge. And one that, you know, in other states, they go, okay, well, you know, we can get rid of the dealers, you know, but we can't get, you know, and, and people start flocking to the, uh, the the legal market. I mean, in Massachusetts, where you are, now, you know, Mass is now tracking for north of $2 billion a year in retail sales. You know, California has doubled that, but it's doubled that on, you know, four times the population, which means that we still have a, you know, massive industry that exists on the illicit side that isn't going to go away until you know, new rules are promulgated that actually aren't so pejorative that they actually um, force people into the arms of the illicit market because the legal market still remains either A, too expensive or too illusory. It just doesn't exist in, in so many municipalities. So I'm hoping that California you know, starts figuring this out. Couldn't agree more. It's, uh, it's really important that the state recognizes the hurdles that producers are under. Um, not only on the regulatory side, but also the taxation side. Um, it's really hurting business right now, and it needs to be ironed out. Um, it's, it's, it just has to. Yeah, I talk to regulators all the time, and I try to explain to them from an economics perspective what the Laffer curve is and how there is a certain line that, you know, if you overtax something that no longer is viable to the people that are trying to access that market. And California seems to tickle that line all the time. And, you know, sometimes they, uh, they cross it where, you know, people say, you know what, I'm just not doing this and I'm going to still access the same guy I've used forever. 
And other times, you know, you have municipalities that actually think about this in the right way. Like, you know, I'll point to Adelanto or Needles as examples where they've, you know, kept a really low tax rate and really encouraged um, um, businesses to want to operate there. The only problem is that you don't have anyone that wants to work there. You know, and you've got to be in, in areas where you've got a really good pool of um, available uh, human capital to, you know, drive these businesses forward. So you can, you know, have these great rules in, you know, places in the middle of nowhere, but it doesn't really do that much. It takes, you know, cities like LA and San Diego and San Jose and San Francisco and Oakland to really make those changes um, to encourage, you know, uh, the industry to flourish. And <clears throat> to date, you know, we just haven't seen that, which I, I think we're, we're all curious what happens in the next couple of weeks with Governor Newsom and whether or not he gets recalled. And if he does, you know, is that going to change the uh, the tide of, you know, kind of the canvas industry? And I, I think the industry right now, by all accounts, seems to be relatively divided on whether, you know, a recall of Newsom would be good or bad. I, I happen to think it wouldn't be, a, it would be a bad thing, but, um, but I'm not sure. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. You know, politically, I don't have any thoughts on Newsom. Um, I know that there's a lot of individuals that are unhappy with his performance. Um, I think that, you know, anyone that we put in office that doesn't have a plan for cannabis ahead of time is going to be problematic. Um, I would say that Newsom, Newsom has, has done, you know, what he can, but he hasn't focused on it. It's not been a topic that he has solely taken on um in the, in the ways that I think benefits business. So I think that in, in that respect, he needs, he needs a lot of work on that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think we saw that with, um, Deval Patrick in Massachusetts, who was convinced that that law wouldn't pass in 2012. And, you know, I spoke to him a month before the law passed and he's like, oh, that thing's not going anywhere. And my reaction is, you know, watch. It, it definitely is. And we even saw it in, you know, your former hometown of New York, where I think Cuomo was ill prepared as well. I think Hawkman's, you know, probably a lot better prepared to try to take this on. And, you know, hopefully at this point, you know, mass is moving a little bit faster than it used to. It's still myopic, but it's, you know, definitely better than it was. But, you know, we're seeing, as I said, we're seeing record numbers come out of the Northeast. I don't know if you saw the numbers come out of Maine, but I think Maine just reported $10 million in adult use sales last week. Yeah. And, and, and here's some insight, I think, just being out here from an operational standpoint. Um, the operations here are not great at producing um, high quality cannabis that um, heavy users want to use all the time. They're, they're producing things that are, that are, you know, okay by, you know, normal standards, but that's not what the market truly wants right now. So places like Maine, where there are boutique growers in, in mass, uh, in, in, in numbers, they're able to capture, um, out of state, um, med holders and med card holders and, and capture that, that business. And I think that really contributed to a lot of Maine success over the past, I would even say that, you know, since Massachusetts even came online, I think it's been really interesting watching a lot of these, um, these individuals go to a state that has a better cost program and the quality is much, is actually superior to, to what they're going to find in, in a state like Massachusetts. So it's, uh, it's really, it's, it's interesting. I totally agree. I mean, I used to have a hydro store in Portland and, you know, and I interact with a ton of growers up there. And, uh, you know, Maine has always been a producer state as well. It's not just a consumer state. So there's a really, you know, long standing history of like robust, um, cultivation up there, especially on the outdoor side in the summer. I mean, I've been to farms up there where like they've got their own runways in the middle of their farm. So it's, you know, these aren't small operations, but the, uh, you know, the, the methodology that's been employed in organic growing methodology has always been, you know, kind of rivaling what you saw in, uh, in British Columbia and California for years now, or what you saw in, in, you know, the new Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. 
So it's, you know, the means definitely a leader that way, which meant again, it was, it was hard for me to kind of get rid of an illicit market, which why when, you know, when I say $10 million in sales last month, um, it doesn't sound like very much, but for Maine, you know, that's, that's a pretty big number. It's a really low population state, which means it's tracking for, you know, 120, $130 million run rate for, for the year. But on a population, that's tiny. So I mean, that, that's real progress of, you know, kind of migrating the illicit market to the legal, which is a hard thing to do in an independent state like Maine or an independent state like Alaska, where people just, you know, it's super libertarian and, you know, don't, don't tell me where I can buy what I want to buy. So it's, it's cool to see Maine really progressing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, being so close to Maine, um, I never thought I would be interested in that market, but it, it, every time I go up there, I'm like, oh, this place is actually, there's some, seems like there's some, there's some teeth to this, you know, like there, you know, Portland seems like there's, it's a healthy market, you know, there's a lot of people moving in and out and I see dispensaries doing numbers and it's interesting, you know, you know, cost per pound wholesale is still $3,200. So you've been in the industry a long time I and mean, you and I only met probably about seven or eight months ago, but, uh, but by reputation, you know, I've, I've known who you are and certainly I've, I've known a lot of other extractors. I've known your work for a long time and I'm always blown away whenever I look at your Instagram posts, you know, how, um, amazing your product looks, but I'd love to hear, you know, kind of how you got into the industry. Tell us a little bit about Vessel Life Sciences, what you're working on yeah. and kind of where you see the direction going. Yeah, sure. So. I got into the industry as like, you know, really young guy. Um, and I wouldn't even call it an industry back then. It was just more of a community of growers that I grew up around, um, as a teenager. And I, I started growing plants as a 15, 14, 15 year old kid being influenced by older heads that were, you know, going on tour and bringing, bringing headies back and showing me like, yo, this is, this is the, you know, this is Hayes and this is skunk and, you know, I grew up in a place in Pennsylvania that, um, Chester County, where we had a lot of, uh, Dutch influence and a lot of people growing cannabis around me at a young age. So I was gifted a lot of different seeds that were from, from dead tour. I still have a lot of these things and I'm still kind of slowly going through. And I, you know, admittedly was growing tons of different varietals at a really young age. And I was just kind of infatuated with, the plant and all the different varietals that you could grow. And then, um, you know, I was at the, at the cusp of like laughing moon when, when all this like internet thing happened with, with, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, basically it was, it was like a bunch of Canadians started this, this website called laughing moon, which was, you know, uh, a hub for cannabis information. It was like the, it was that. And then the British Columbia growers association had this like straight forum and like, you know, people were posting stuff on there and you were just kind of learning about, you know, different cuts that were going around and, and different breeders and, you know, a bunch of different people. That's where I met Marcus Richardson eventually was through that, which eventually turned into overgrow.com. And then we started trading cuts. And Hash Church. Yeah. And then Hash Church kind of evolved out of all of that because that was kind of the the individuals that were trading information at the time, there just wasn't many of us. And we, none of us really felt comfortable talking about any of this stuff. You know, like I was making, you know, washing hash in, you know, New York and then Northern California and, and trying to have a balance between, you know, doing that and doing what I truly love to do and, and not being able to talk about it, but then all automatically having all this material to be like, Hey, try this, try that. You know, it was, it was a quite a time to, to, to be going through that because um, 
you don't you don't have that kind of sharing anymore. You don't have like people with abundance of material just walking around, passing you uh, jars to try. So I do miss that. But um, but yeah, it all it all came down from a really young age, through my twenties, and then um, you know just all the tour, all the fish tour stuff, and having the ability to uh, meet other like-minded individuals that were growing different varietals and trading those cuts. Um, and then ultimately meeting Marcus and um, Marcus introducing me to like people like Dave Watson and Skunkman Sam and just being really um, influenced by their work, you know, informed a lot of the things that I was doing, you know, in terms of solventless extraction. And, um, and then in, in turn, we kind of share, share the knowledge. Now we, uh, we talk to each other often and, Hey, I'm doing this and you, sh- you know, you should try that. And that spirit of, of, you know, a teenage kid, you know, talking to his buddy about the thing that he loves is still kind of still present, if you will, you know, through a lot of these things. You think the, uh, the guys in BC are kind of still leading the charge as far as uh, solventless, you know, you think they're, they're still the ones that are like pushing the envelope of what can be done. No, I think it's like music. I think the world's too big. I think there's innovation going on everywhere. And I, I think that, um, there's innovation that happens, um, in in all parts of this of the country, man, I, I think there's innovation that happens in the Midwest that we don't even know about. There's probably some kid out there making amazing six star dry sifts that we just don't know about yet. So I truly believe innovation breathes uh, all over the world, and I think BC it's where it started. I think Northern California really was a champion for it, but I think the world is kind of, you know, it's a big place now. You know, I think Europe has a lot to offer too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm just watching what's happening with breeders in the Midwest, and you're seeing some of like the the, the best cuts coming out of Detroit these days. Which, you know, if you told me like 10 years ago I was going to see that, I would have laughed. I mean, like, come on, really, Detroit? But Detroit's like producing straight fire right now. So it's uh, it's super cool to see the innovation and you know, sort of taking an old tradition and expanding on it. Which you know, again, is is not dissimilar as we talked about you know previously to to kind of like a musical tradition of. You know, how do you go from, from blues to, um, to, to bluegrass and from bluegrass to, you know, Zydeco or whatever the progression is that, you know, kind of takes one style and adds to it and says, okay, now I'm going to, you know, put my, um, my signature on it. So, yeah, I think we've seen a lot of the same thing in, in the cannabis industry with progression. Yeah, I have to agree. I think that's, you know, even with breeding, you know, there was a time when we knew everyone on our hand, right? And now we have a lot of individuals that are coming out that, have truly done the work who are really phenomenal at what they do. And that's, that's rare. You know, we, we're, we're in a really different world than we ever were, you know? So I, I totally agree. It's, uh, it's really interesting. So for the listeners out there, um, what does Vessel Life Sciences do? You know, what, what's your, um, you know, kind of what's the business model? Yeah. So what Vessel Life Science does is, um, we are a, we're extractionists. We are a group of extractionists and cultivators that have uh, been doing this for 25 years, um, focusing on solventless extraction, um, and selection of, uh, rare and unique varietals, uh, for the use of that said extraction technique. And that's water hash, um, and solventless extraction, uh, in terms of, of mechanical separation using rosin techniques and post-processing techniques to make vaporization carts and um, all kinds of different products. So uh, the main focus for us is really rare varietals that produce well for solventless extraction and pairing that with um, 
you know, the years of experience of, of building out labs and, um, running, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of hours, um, of material to, um, to learn about the process to optimize it for scale. So it'd be safe to assume that, um, if, if people want to get in touch with you, you're, you know, a hired gun that can come in there and, and build out a lab for them and really teach them something. Yeah, absolutely. So we do consultations for the right individual. Um, it's very rare that we will take on a consultation, but we will do it, um, based on the right in individual and the right opportunity. Um, you know, admittedly these days I've been working on, uh, other brands and, and trying to focus my, my efforts into one thing. Um, but yeah. People can reach out and if, if that's, um, you know, if they're looking for high throughput and things that are uh, with high quality, you know, you can definitely reach out to us and we can help you out. Awesome. You been uh, seeing any of the fish shows that have been happening recently or you been following what's been going on? So I check, I've been following the, the set list. Admittedly, I peek in every so often and I'm just like infatuated with what's going on because, you know, spent a lot of time seeing them over the years. I see there's this, when I see the set list get shorter, that's when the magic happens for me because it means that they're playing longer versions and renditions of, of songs that I want to hear that happen more of you know like i want to hear more exploratory work out of them that's that's what i love about them and what i i yearn to find um they're you know so i think that they're on their game right now and i think that they've really as a as a group have really found a good stride on, on specifically this tour too so um i watched the first four nights um and then i've been checking set lists ever since so yeah, I just spoke to friends that got back from um, from the gorge, so it was amazing. But they said they had friends that were all at Mountain View uh, at Shoreline. I'm sure you saw that. You know the uh, the shows at Harvey's Casino in Tahoe got canceled because of the fire. That Wednesday night at Shoreline uh, looks ridiculous. You know, there's so many fun teases. There's so many fun like breakout songs I haven't played in like 113 shows. Um, I think they're that same run. I think they played their first uh, first Forbins and first Mockingbird in about a couple of years. Lots of, uh, lots of kind of just like random teases. Like, um, I think, uh, let's see what they do. Um, goodness. Set one for, yeah. Yeah. They teased the, teased the walk this way in the mic song, I think on the, uh, on the Wednesday night. Yeah. And, uh, teased American woman as well. But, uh, but I'll, all accounts, Shoreline was probably the hottest thing that's happened so far on this tour. And I'm sorry to say that I was, you know, a couple hours south and didn't make it up there. Yeah. I had a bunch of buddies that were there and incredible night. Um, both nights were incredible, but, um, I think, you know, the 31st show, there was a lot of good stuff going on, man. Like that, that set to Harry hood, that hood, the, t the tele into hood. That's yeah. There's some really good stuff, man. I'm really impressed with the way that they've been able to, uh, hold it together musically as a band, um, after going through everything that they did. Um, they've been able to come back really strong as musicians and really still have that same chemistry. Um, even first night back, there were some moments, um, that I was watching in Georgia that musically speaking, you know, you can, you can just see and tell that they're really connected to one another still. It's amazing to me. I mean, those guys, like you look at other bands I've played that long together and we talked a lot about, um, the Rolling Stones on an episode recently after Charlie Watts passed. And obviously we talk about the Grateful Dead all the time and, 
you know, even those bands have had a fair amount of um, changes in personnel. Like the core might be there, but you know, like when you think of the Rolling Stones, you've had guys like um, uh, like Carl D playing with them for a long time, you know, and you've had uh, you know other like sort of session musicians that have like jumped into Rolling Stones tour for a long period. And, you know, with Grateful Dead, you obviously saw a change in personnel at the keyboard um, multiple times, uh, you know, going from Pigpen to Tom Constant to Keith Godshaw to uh, Brent to Vince, you know, just massive changes. And now you've seen that change again with, you know, the, all the iterations post-Garcia where, you know, it, it, it's all good, you know, it, but it's not the same thing as playing with four people for your entire career where, like, those guys spend so much time practicing together and so much time working together where, like, there are times where I have absolutely no idea how they know when a signature is going to be. And, and by the way, I'll put Kuroda in that as well, where I don't understand how Kuroda knows exactly when they're going to do a signature change or a time change and just nails it, where it's just like he's part of that same sort of um, uh, mental energy, which is – I mean, they, they had that since, like, you know, the late 80s, and it's only gotten better. Oh, he's the man. He, he, you know, and, and cool little fun fact, he's the one who redid when MSG – redid the lighting they hired him to redo the lighting so he's the only guy that can tap into the whole arena as a lighting designer when the band plays he actually has control of the whole building which is really unique because he's the only one that has access to that so if you ever seen a show at msg and he has control of the whole the whole universe in there it's because he designed it including all their house lights and including all the, like their standard lights for ranger games and nick games everything yeah everything yeah so they give yeah. they give him control of all of that if he wants it, and they yeah it was like you know so it's like his home hometown you know hometown stadium basically. That's so crazy. I mean, like think about that. I mean, you think like you know how many times like Elton John or Billy Joel have played that venue. Yeah, and I don't think they've like you know for them like lights aren't nearly as a major part of the show as it is for Fish. Yeah. But when you think about like just the uh, like how much trust he's flying already of just like his own lighting and how much work there is just to like keep all that you know kind of going and it's like you look at you know what he has right now in his arsenal. It's insane. It's, a, it's beautiful. I was, yeah, I was going to comment on that is, uh, you know, a couple of buddies of mine, we've been chatting about his new, the new rig eventually, eventually, essentially that's over top of the band is that's a new setup. Like the way that he's, he's set up this tour that's with the LEDs that goes, you know, you know, it's like, it's a like Rubik's cube basically. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Plus they move vertically. They can like drop, like they can lower and raise, which is like when they, they added that, I think last year. And that was the first one I'd ever seen a lighting designer do that. And I've, I've gotten the chance to like actually be like, you know, up close with a lot of really good lighting designers. Yeah. Um, like STS9's designers yeah. is pretty amazing. I've never seen a lighting rig, you know, like even like what Candace Brightman had with, you know, the Grateful Dead, which was, you know, state of the art at the time is like, you know, that, that was, that was pre led. That was before you could change colors. You know, that you're still working with studio spots that were changing colors on spin, but they weren't changing colors in real time and washing across, you know, the entire arena. Uh, it's, it, it's a completely different game now to understand how to you know program that stuff. Yeah. These guys are on a different plane at this point. And the, you know, the way they, they're using light is just incredible. It's, it's, and even with the, the, the dead setup too, man, it's changed for them. You know, it's, it's changed their, the way that they've done, their setup too, you know, in terms of their shows, you know, their, yep. their new setup is, is pretty great too. So, yeah, I, I never think that the, um, the sound engineers and the lighting techs get nearly as much uh, credit as they deserve for being, you know, that much part of the band, like, you know, that they are an extra member. I mean, like for, um, you know, for fish, you always give, um, you know, Tom Marshall a fair amount of credit for, for being so much of a part of the band as a, as a lyricist or the way like Robert Hunter or John Perry Barlow were for the dead. 
but no one, no one ever thinks about Dan Healy. No one ever thinks about like Betty Cantor, you know, and think about the people that, that adjust the levels to make sure that what you're hearing is perfect. Yeah. You're so right about that. That's the audio is, is the most important thing, um, that we overlook in the front of house and even, even side, side, like side, side house. Like what's the, what's the stage sound like that, that affects the chemistry and, and what's audibly happening out, out, out front too, you know? So there's, you know, I don't think most people don't realize like there's two audio engineers, essentially. There's one guy side of house working with the band and there's another one, you know, making sure that like what you're experiencing there is, is, is right. You know, I think you're totally right. Yeah. It's, it's, and so having to know like each room you go into and what the nuance of that room is. So I was like, you know, if I were to give an analogy, I was think it's kind of like a caddy who has to know every single course you're going to play and like, you know, where the, the putts on the green are, how to read that green, you know, what the, uh, like how the, the grass has been cut, how deep the rough is, all those things that they can actually then advise to, um, to let the people that are doing the work, you know, in this case, the musicians, uh, play the room properly, like where you're going to put the monitors and where you're going to put the, uh, the other sound and how you're going to make sure there's no echo bouncing off things like, like the playing, playing a, an outdoor venue is completely different from playing a shed, which is completely different from playing an indoor room. And then you get to the theaters and like every room has its own feeling, you know, it's they're completely different. Yeah. And we can't, you know, look and it all, all, all roads point back to the wall of sound. I mean, honestly, yeah, like yep. we wouldn't have live music the way that we experience it without that moment in time. You know, they pushed live experience, experiential music to the limit at the time. And we're we're actually better for it because of that. I mean, we wouldn't have. I think we'd be still pretty far away from where we're at now. Honestly, and I think you know we, we talked about Owsley Stanley relatively recently on the show, and you know we talked about kind of what he did in the world of um, of turning on the world of, with LSD. But I think that people forget that one of the beneficiaries of that is sound quality, like. Basically, Wall Sound was like funded through you know LSD sales for Owsley, and you know like this is my experimentation of like let's see what we can do for for perfect sound, and obviously it became untenable to cart around you know two truckloads full of uh, sound equipment you know with two different setups or leapfrogging each other between venues, but uh, but what he did for you know making people realize what was possible with sound engineering, a simply amazing, and b all on the back of LSD sales, so you know pretty pretty incredible. So, uh, I don't know if you've been listening to too much Grateful Dead recently, but, um, but obviously, like, I, I still listen to it, you know, every day. I still listen to Garcia Band every day. I probably still listen to Fish and, you know, Panic every day as well. Um, but, uh, but usually we try to make sure that we're discussing a, a little bit of something that's, you know, relevant to, uh, the date that we're having the show. So I don't know if you had a chance to, to listen to any of, uh, 91285 from the Henry J. Kaiser Arena, but, uh, or you're just familiar with that date in general. No, I know that, I know the show, um, but I'm not familiar um, with the date itself. Is it associated with something else other than uh, it just being an incredible night of music with them? Yeah, I mean, nothing special. I mean, nothing as far as like it wasn't like, you know, a guest uh, musician came out or that, you know, like there was a set list that was on blue. It was a, just a standard run-of-the-mill, you know, hard-charging 85 show. And, you know, if, if you listen to the show a lot, you know, every everyone that uh, hosts this thing has kind of a different era that they love. For me, 85 is about as good as it gets. So, you know, we, we covered a couple other 85 shows, but this Kaiser show, you know, I love it because it was kind of in the era where, um, you know, I don't know if it was fueled by cocaine use or whether it was, um, you know, fueled by just kind of liking a, a faster sort of clip. And you can think about the times where like, you know, um, Trey is given sort of like the moniker of being like machine gun Trey for just, you know, playing super, super fast. But this was during the era where everything was sped up. You know, the Isles were sped up, the Franklins were sped up, you know, it wasn't like this sort of slow loopy intros. It was just, you know, coming right at it. 
So I think we have a clip, Dan, of the um, of the the Franklin's Tower from that night. But this will kind of give an idea of kind of like the style of how they were playing at the time. I think that's really typical of you know what the 85 sound was like where um you know a lot of interplay um not only was was garcia fast but obviously everyone else you know the whole rhythm section is fast too but that was you know super heavy uh fill coming into that clip and also just a really good interplay of um of uh, brent midland sort of jumping in there and and you know tickling it back and forth between the garcia licks and the uh and the keyboard it's an incredible show the the I'm, I'm looking at some some of the notes on it now um yeah, that whole era for me was um, really 74 up until the late 80s for me, some of my favorite stuff. And I, I would even feel like some of the some of the 90s stuff is actually pretty good. Like if you if you find some diamonds in the rough there, there's some really good shows there. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the 90s, but that's also I'm biased. You know, all, all the shows I saw were 88 forward. So it's uh, hard not to like the era that you're a part of. But, you know, for everyone that says there's no good shows in the 90s, I can pick out, you know, 50 examples of, of why that's just a mis, mis uh, belief of, uh, <laughs> of where they're playing at the time. Yeah, and they, they go through so many different phases as musicians. And, you know, those guys are such powerhouses in terms of individual players. So, like, you know, Jerry was just he was in a different different mode than he was even in the 80s stuff that we're that we listened to versus the 70s stuff but you know at the at the same time like you said like their bpm range was much faster like that that was probably like i don't know like that was that was that was maybe like 10 10 bpms faster than what they're usually playing that yeah i think that's almost exactly right you know if you look at this from a sort of an electronic music perspective of, of beats per minute um, there is a very, very noticeable difference when you listen to a Franklin's from like 75, 76, or even like sort of the Titanic 77, uh, Franklin's that had the, the really long outros, you know, those are, those outros would get fast kind of like in the, in the final sort of build up before the crescendo, but then they'd get really, really slow going towards the end. Whereas like the 85s, they, they would just crush it all the way through. And that was true of, you know, everything else they were doing at the time as well. And if you think about those like, you know, 85, um, set lists, it's a lot of tunes they only played for like a brief period of time. Like from this show, you had a, um, a brother Esau, which, you know, only lasted for, you know, five or six years in kind of regular rotation. So it's, um, you know, a really fun era, um, that still has, you know, a lot of the sort of the classic songs, but then there's, you know, all sorts of, um, all sorts of like mid eighties tunes that, um, that didn't necessarily exist away from 85, you know, and I always look at, you know, day tripper as an example, or, um, believe it or not, you know, sort of from like 85 to 88 or the comes of times, that you know really only existed in that era, um, which I think is some of the cleanest, smoothest music they played. That was prior to you know Garcia's coma or prior to the um, the sort of Dylan the Dead era. Um, but I love I love the late eighty fives. Some of my favorite stuff is 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 the late seventies into the eighties because they were so um, on top of the beat. Like they weren't like the the sixties was like a little behind, like this laid back kind of vibe, right for me at least. And then as they get progressively this like touring powerhouse, 
you can just see it in them. They're like, we're rock stars and we're just killing it. And we're on top of the beat. And it was really this like really forward, like chugging along super heavy, super fast um, moments. And, and um, you know, as a percussionist, it's honest, honestly why I liked when, um, when Kreutzmann was playing by himself, to be honest. Like I love Mickey, but I love the cleanness of, of how like directional he was with his playing when he was by himself. I just really appreciated his ability to like, just as a musician to musician, I could, I could see what he was doing and I, I could just, as, as pure influence, I could, I could, I just was like, ah, oh, that's really, it's amazing. Have you seen him play with Billy and the Kids? Like playing with like Tom Hamilton and those guys? Yeah. Killer. Yeah. yeah you know, it's like, brings me back to, to listening to a lot of that stuff, but I, I'm just a huge fan of his work anyway, but, um. But yeah, some of that stuff is some of my favorite, just like as from a musical standpoint, I should say. You know, nice. Are you gonna go see any of the uh, the Dead and Co shows, or uh, did did you see any of them? Or they're just kind of in your backyard here recently. They're in my backyard, man. And I I honestly have been so busy just going back and forth between California and the East Coast that I just my head's been down just trying to get all this stuff off the ground, keep keep it in the right direction. So. You know, uh, I'm with you. I, mean, I think when they're truly in my backyard in a few weeks, uh, I'll, I'll probably pop by and either see a uh, Santa Barbara or see LA or see, you know, Chula Vista, but, um, maybe a night or two. Um, and the same thing for fish. Unfortunately, they're both playing at the same time. They're, they're both at late October. They're in, you know, San Diego, LA. So we'll see what I can pull off. But, uh, you're going to have to go both nights, man. Yeah. Are they doing two nights? Um, uh, for dead and co or for fish? For fish. For fish, I'm probably going to get at least two nights, yeah. And then if I can figure out a way to get out to Vegas, uh, we have to see whether or not my wife is supportive of, uh, <laughs> of me taking off for, you know, like, hey, honey, I go on Dead & Co. and Fish Tour for, you know, a week or so. I'll see you in November. Um, probably isn't going to go over too well. But uh, but we'll see. We'll see what I can pull off. <laughs> I'm rooting for you. But listen, man, it's been awesome having you on the show. I've wanted you as a guest for, for a long time, and it's so rare where it's just a one-on-one like this. So it's uh, it's really fun just to be able to have, like, a a fun conversation and uh again you know let people know how to reach you if they need to reach you and um you know if there's anything else uh that's on your mind you know let us know cool thanks man yeah you guys can reach me at uh vessellifescience.com uh you can follow my work on instagram um you know we there's going to be some announcements going on in in the state of california with the company that i'm working with so there should be some great products on the market by uh you know at least mid-december um so you know keep an eye out everyone and thanks so much rob thanks for having me of course and as soon as you as soon as you're ready to make that announcement i think i've got the uh sort of the inside track on what it is but uh but when you're ready to let me know to to announce i'm more than happy to uh to tell the world what you're working on right now which is super cool and i can't wait to share it thank you yeah let's let's try to schedule it again man i appreciate it definitely all right well thank you so much this is rob hunt from linnea holdings and the deadhead canvas show signing off uh, another fun week thank you to dan hummison our producer uh next week we will be joined by larry mishkin and jim marty as uh is the norm and i believe the week after that we'll be joined by the legendary david gans to uh, be a guest of ours on the show so excited about that so stay tuned. Lots of fun programming coming to you in the next couple weeks. And until then, have a great day and enjoy your cannabis responsibly.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.